huge absence in organisation. Right now, the focus uh, of business transformation is largely on building um, digital skills and, and technology skills, and it should be balanced with human skills. And a lot of that comes down to spending time, coaching individuals, doing role play, um, and then actually making sure that they're doing it. Because often you find that big companies have all of these processes in place and best practices, but a lot of the leadership aren't actually doing it and it falls to the wayside. So um, I'm sure you might've seen this out in the marketplace yourself, but I think coaching is the biggest missed opportunity in organizations. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with a change fatigue and resilience specialist, author of Reimagine Change, and has a mission to recognize and rehumanize individuals to lead change by design, not by default. She has a Bachelor in Psychology and Economics from the University of Sydney, an MBA program in organizational change management from University of New South Wales Business School, has done a compassion cultivation training at Stanford University, and has a modern psychology diploma in NLP practicing and coaching from the Mind Academy. Her career includes sales and manager roles at News Corp Australia, Southern Cross Osterio, and Bauer Media Group, and has spent time as a change manager at Deloitte Australia before founding Reimagine Change. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a curious leader who supports people through stress management, potential fulfillment, and legacy-focused coaching. Is a supporter of suicide prevention charity, Are You Okay? And is a proud mother of two energetic boys, Kira Lancaster. Kira, welcome to the show. Hi, Craig. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Now, I'm, you're currently living in Sydney, Australia. I'm curious to know where you grew up and what was life like for you as a child? Yes, so I grew up in Australia. I think I'm one of the few people in the industry that did grow up here. There's a big expat community um, from around the globe. Uh, I was fortunate to grow up opposite the SCG and living down the road from the busy Paddington markets. And at about age seven, I was really into cooking and baking. So I used to bake every weekend and go up to the markets and sell those muffins exclusively to the stallholders. And it was there that I started building some real relationships and hearing stories of hardship and humour and hard work from all of those small business owners up at the markets. Beyond that, um, I was probably about age seven. It was 1987 and the stock market crashed. So my dad was a stockbroker and off the back of that, um, I think that changed the lives of our family forever and many other families, of course, beyond ours. And we ended up going and living in Dublin, in Ireland, when I was a teenager. So mum's Irish and we headed over there and we found ourselves um, wearing kilts, speaking Gaelic and being taught by nuns at a convent. 
So that was a complete 180 to growing up in Sydney. But we loved it. It was, you know, a great opportunity to learn a lot about other cultures and also just to be exposed to um, other ways of living. Beyond that, we ended up going and living in um, Texas for a short period. And that was our first time that we'd ever been exposed to that American culture, which is very different um, to Australian ways. Um, and that was also our first time being exposed to co-educational culture. So when we went to school, we caught the yellow school bus. We'd go into school, there'd be boys wearing cowboy hats and there'd be girls that were all in all of those um, different peer groups, like the cheerleaders and the nerds. And it was really like stepping into an episode of the Wonder Years. So I think um, that was an eye-opening experience as well. But I came back and finished uh, school here in Sydney and then progressed uh, into uni at Sydney University. Brilliant. And, and so, you know, you, you already showed to me that you're someone that has already experienced resilience and change and is aptly <laughs> the right person to be discussing you know, these topics and, and working and coaching people through them as well. Would you describe yourself as more of a leader or someone who liked to be led as a teenager? Hmm. I think possibly both. When you're a teenager, your number one priority is to fit in with the pack and to feel a sense of belonging. And I think because we went to so many schools when we were younger, you learned pretty quickly that you didn't want to be eating lunch by yourself. So you had to find ways to build trust, to build rapport and to build friendships so that you could have fun at school and also, I guess, support your own mental health journey along the way. Yeah, brilliant. And so who, who had the greatest influence on your life and who you are as a person outside of your family during that time? Because obviously you're moving around the world was there someone else who had a real big influence on you as a person? It's hard outside of my family. I feel like with all that change going on, that was the constant for me, the family members that I was with, because everything else was changing, schools, countries, pen pals. Um, I used to share a room with my sister, so I think... Um, even when I didn't feel like I had particularly close relationships with others, I always had someone at home that I could bounce conversations with and share whatever was going on, whether they were the highs and lows of life. So I'm not sure if there was an external um, person that really influenced. I'll have to have a think about that one at that young age. Oh, that's good. And, and so obviously you're experiencing different cultures, different ways of doing things, um, different accents along the way as well. Did you find when you come back to Sydney that it was a bit of a culture shock for you to actually come back to, you know, yes, you'd lived there before, but now you had this global experience and your different perspective on life than what a lot of the other people did at high school and even going into university? Definitely. So I'm fortunate that I'm still very good uh, friends with some of those kids that I went to junior school and senior school with. And it's been lovely watching them evolve as individuals and, and know their families and their style of um, leadership themselves. But for me, I think I was always comfortable with having conversations with adults as a teenager. And as a result, while a lot of people were probably um, going to parties and doing more sport during those teenage years, I started working um, probably from about the age of 14. Um, I worked in a chemist initially, 
Then I went and worked at Foot Locker selling shoes. And even though I was only in there two days a week, I became their top salesperson in the state because I was very comfortable talking to people and I would ask the right questions. What is it that makes the number one salesperson? So I think once you learn those small questions, the right questions to ask, they do hold you well in different careers. And I guess beyond that, um, I went into hospitality. And so you really understand human behavior when you're on the other side and your job is a service-based role when you are actually providing for people and particularly uh, when you're working as a waitress or behind a bar and you're expecting tips and those tips are gonna be what help to pay your rent or your electricity bill, you learn the skills quite quickly and they do hold you in good stead all the way through your career. Because I can instantly tell when I've met someone and when I'm out having a coffee with them, how they treat other people around them and you, and you get a sense of whether they are really deeply in touch with um, what it is to be human and how it is to connect with others. Yeah, that human connection is so important. And so, you you know, you've you found yourself, like obviously you're talking about being really good at sales and really kind of delving into that human behavior in sales at quite a young age. Mm. How did you then end up in a career in media sales? Interestingly enough, uh, I'd finished my degree and I got invited to a dinner party and there was someone at the dinner party who worked in recruitment and they said, come and see me next week. And without knowing it, they said, I've got a job for you. It's only a temp role and I can't tell you who it's for. And you have to take the leap of faith and just turn up for the interview. So I turned up for the interview and it happened to be at News Corp. Um, and I accepted the role working for the sales director there as their sort of EA. And that is the best role to work in because you are exposed to the numbers, the people, the strategy, and everyone on the sales floor. Um, and it's a very high energy, fast paced role. And I absolutely loved it. Um, and beyond the work, uh, I was fortunate enough to meet my partner there as well. So that was an added bonus um, at the time. That's amazing what can happen and just in a conversation. So I think that's it's a great lesson for so many people that you never know who you're talking to. So just be ready at any time um, and you never know where the doors will open. That's right. And I think a lot of people forget that you have all these wonderful skills within you. They might not be sitting on your CV, but if you back yourself and know that you can learn along the way, People are more looking for character and spirit and willingness rather than actual hard skills. And I think we really need to be focusing on that more than ever with the current change in uh, the workforce at the moment where we all need to be adaptive leaders as opposed to relying on that traditional skill set that we may have always had. Uh, adaptability is really, really important. So working in the fast-paced world of media, especially with a prominent company such as News Corp, would have been pretty exciting, uh, and, and as it, most people can imagine. You know, what was your greatest lesson learned during your time at News Corp? I think my greatest lesson might have been when I was working, um, the first time I switched into the sales role where I had to do a lot of cold calling um, to sell in back then what was called special reports into the newspaper. And you really had to learn that it was a numbers game and you had to know your statistics. 
and you had to build rapport with the client. So you weren't necessarily going to land the sale on the first conversation. So you had to really build that, that strength over time. So I think it was a lot of perseverance and that's definitely been a skill that's stayed with me. Yeah, we see that a lot of people making that mistake of when they think of sales, they need to they need to do the pitch on the first go. And mm. for a lot of things, you don't. It's building relationships, it's building rapport, and being able to connect with them human on a human basis first uh, before you get the trust and the loyalty to actually have the permission, so to speak, before you can actually try and sell them something. You're so right there, Craig. Yeah. So you decided to. Uh, you're into university and you're studying psychology and economics. What was, where did the real fascination for human behavior come from? Um, I think I'd always been a people person. So I wanted to do psychology. My parents wanted to push me into economics. So I met them in the middle and probably did both, um, which was lots of fun. I mean, you're exposed to two very different type of people on campus. And let's be honest, that undergraduate degree is always lots of fun. There's lots of parties. There's lots of alcohol. And I probably didn't push myself um, and my degree until I did my second one, learning change management at the AGSM. Mm. So was there anything that really sparked, you know, throughout your career that sparked your curiosity to focus on change management? Sure. Uh, you know, they say that people are either, their brains are programmed to head towards either threat or reward. And for me, uh, I was working in magazines at the time and um, all of these traditional mediums were going through significant transformation where they had to digitise their businesses. Um and what was happening is that change management wasn't really around. And if it was, it was being done incredibly poorly or it was being put on the backburn. And this was based on the survival of the business. So what we were seeing is that um, information would be leaked to the press and teams or magazines would be closing and you would read about it before teams would be updated. And then you would go into the business and you would see people very publicly being let go or being made redundant. And that really um, struck a chord in my heart because these were incredibly hardworking people and they had families and they were doing amazing work. Um, and so to witness that and to understand the repercussions of that, deep down in my heart, I knew there had to be a better way. So um, it wasn't until I was on my second mat leave and I had a six-week-old and a two-year-old that I started studying organisational change management because I had to know. I was always very curious by nature and I really appreciate um, understanding what the academic side of learning is and then obviously the experience side so that's going on always working with the best and being exposed to these brilliant minds and understanding how they apply frameworks in person so for me it was being exposed to the hardship and the lack of awareness on how positive change management can be that, that drove me to go and study yeah so so you then working with uh, one of the big four with Deloitte you know provides great exposure to different company structures and cultures what consistently stood out for you as having an effect on company culture with which companies you were working with um with regards to company culture every culture is going to be unique 
The side of the work that really lit me up was conducting change leadership interviews. I think it's an absolute privilege to be able to sit one-on-one -on -one with a leader and spend time really deep diving into what their vision for their business is and what the sentiment is for their team. So often what we hear is that most businesses have gone through previous rounds of business transformation and some of them have gone well and some of them haven't gone well. And people can speak um, ad nauseum about the ones that haven't gone well. They really deeply impact their business, their team and their emotional psyche. And the one question that I kept asking all of these leaders is what's keeping you up at night? Behind closed doors, what are you most worried about? And often it wouldn't be culture that they would lead that conversation with. It would be a very personal conversation um, about how worried they were about how their team was going to get through and how they themselves were going to get through. Because when you're at the top, you're privileged with information. You know how many uh, more change initiatives are coming down the pipeline. You know what's been held back and what's to come. And sometimes your team aren't exposed to that. So often that's like carrying a boulder of responsibility on your shoulder. You know it's sitting there and you can't share that information. And we know that when you don't share information with others, when you keep it to yourself, that's when we start to see a decline with uh, mental health. So really for me, I wanted to make sure that um, I was documenting this information. I was better understanding the importance of mindset and I could start to draw on all my, all my knowledge and wisdom and put that into the book that I, I, I subsequently went on to write to make leaders feel less alone. I think it is a very lonely journey at the top and even these days where change leadership used to be the responsibility just of someone like the change manager or the C-suite, what we're finding now with more distributed leadership is that it's everyone's responsibility. Right down the business, um, no longer are we cascading information, we're distributing it and everybody needs to play a role. But because everybody's playing a new role, they're now having new responsibilities added over and above their traditional workload. And that is really impacting the levels of change fatigue that they're feeling. And again, it's all about making sure that people realize that there's others going through the exact same inner turmoil, the exact same personal journey. And the more we can talk about it, the more we can open up those lines of communications, the more we can actually challenge ourselves to think about it in a new way. Yeah, CEO loneliness is a real issue, and you know, it's unless you have a good team of people around you that can give you both an internal and an external sort of feedback or or, or a view or perspective of what's going on, uh, it can be you know a lot of sleepless nights, and it can really affect you because, as you say, you can't always share everything. But then, you know, as you say, you can if you start to work on things and start to build trust and loyalty throughout your organisation, you can then start to build more of a collaborative leadership style or distributed leadership style as well. You know, while you're at Deloitte, you're working with teams of you know, 500 plus people in business transformation and digital change. What, what did you find you know, uh, during those times we were working with so many people that was the most crucial part of change? 
I think um, being able to really understand what one person's journey is, that inner emotional turmoil was critical at the micro level. At the macro level, you need to really entrench yourself in the business and the different business units and understand how they all impact one another. And that does take a certain amount of time to truly understand that. I think it's very hard for consultants to go into businesses for short-term contracts and really do a great job if they haven't been exposed to the nuances um, and also the different trajectories, understanding how different business units um, expose growth is really important. So um, one part of the business that I really enjoyed working with was um, the innovation team because I think there is a beautiful alignment between change that's coming down the line and how the business is evolving and growing. So you've got business transformation and you've got innovation. And I think change plays a beautiful role of bringing those two together because what we now know is change is no longer done to people. It's done with people. It's this evolution of co-creation. It's about getting people on board and using their strengths And a lot of the time, it's this untapped creativity within, which is a way to make the change process exciting for people. Yes, there's always going to be compliance-focused change, but there's always opportunities to tap in and be a future leader where you're contributing to what that innovation agenda is. So that was one of my favourite parts of the job, making sure that we were balancing the chaos with the calm, with the contribution. I just absolutely loved it. The chaos with a calm with a contribution. That's uh, the three C's <laughs> of, of change. I really like that. So, you know, for you, you're working at Deloitte. You know, it's a large multinational company. You're delivering change. You know, you're, you're supporting change initiatives. And then you decide to become an entrepreneur. What was the shift for you to go, you know what? I've enjoyed working in the big company, but now it's my turn. I think for me, uh, there are two things at play. One, I could see the pieces of the puzzle for the book that I was going to write. I had all this um, data from interviewing all of these um, leaders. I had done um, a lot of the um, corporate and academic experience. Um, Deep down, I was experiencing on a personal level some compassion fatigue and some um, aspects of burnout myself. So I did need to take um, a short break to really make sure that I was protecting my own immune system along the way. But I went on further to um, do some study around neuroscience and mindset um, and really understand also um, the impacts of emotional trauma. Um, Because often what we find is we talk a lot about stress when we talk about burnout, but stress lives in the mind. As when we talk about emotional trauma, that lives in the body. And when you approach that, um, it's quite different. And I truly believe that most people are walking around on eggshells. They're a little bit of a nervous wreck. And in this world where we're living in these unprecedented times and there's so much uncertainty and volatility around, there is that underlying um, sensation in our body that we do need to address. So for me, um, I was super excited to go away and study about the difference between the brain, the mind and the body, and then to continue my own research, which involved um, getting the opportunity to reach out to some of my favourite neuroscientists online. Aren't we living in a fabulous world when you can just reach out and connect with all these great minds? 
um, and I was fortunate to um, get in touch with Dr. Stephen Forges, who is most famous for his work on the polyvagal theory. So that's all to do with the nervous system and, and understanding how to approach emotional trauma and look after your body. And we talk a lot about that in the book, um, that it's not just about the brain and the mind, it's about supporting the body. So I guess the journey between um, going from working in corporate to going and being an entrepreneur was really spurred on by just this absolute passion and enthusiasm for the topic and wanting to approach it from a very um, human-centric way. Very good. So you, you spoke about stress in the mind there, which uh, is quite interesting to, to think of it, to, to look at it from that approach, because you know, people think of stress as a really bad word and a bad thing. Well, it's not because mm. we need stress to build our immune system, to develop and grow, etc. as well. So the stress you're talking about that goes shifts into the mind. Can you explain what that is a little bit more? Sure, and I absolutely agree with you. So stress gets a bad rap from the media, but um, there are good aspects of stress, mainly that it surges us on to complete goals. And, um, you know, it sounds like, Craig, you're an, a phenomenal goal achiever, and I know you're a triathlete behind the scenes as well. So um, you would absolutely adhere to that positive stress. But the negative side of stress is that what we find is... Um, that in the mind we become very anxious and we can be up late at night ruminating a lot. When we let stress go from being normal levels of stress to being chronic levels of stress, so when we don't address it. So that's why I think it's very important to understand um, what stress is and how it is normally approached by the experts. So psychologists normally approach it through um, cognitive um, behavioral methods um, and a lot of that is addressing what the triggers understanding what the triggers are addressing the triggers um, using calming methods and and working through that way but um, for me I was really interested in understanding the difference between stress and trauma and how that impacts us um, yeah very good very good so 2020 has been quite a timely year for you to complete your book reimagine change and obviously, you know, establish the company as well. For you, taking that time off to um, take a, a bit of a sabbatical, so to speak, or some time to actually write your book, how, uh, how did that affect you as a person? You know, just being able to have that time to sit there, put down your thoughts and go through the whole process of writing a book. No one will ever tell you how hard writing a book is. Um, <laughs> I was very fortunate to um, be working um, with Kelly Irvine and her um, author academy while I was writing the book because there are a lot of nuances to writing a good book that your audience or your reader will get the most out of. And I really wanted to learn the tips and tricks, as I've said before, like this curious mind, this understanding of mastery, it's always been really important to me. So... Um, Yes, it was absolutely a privilege to sit down and write the book. I didn't expect it to be as hard as it was, um, but it was absolutely worth it. I feel so proud of where we've come to. Um, it's just you really push yourself to go down different avenues that you may not have considered. So they do say that writing can be quite cathartic, and I would absolutely agree with that. Um, I really enjoyed understanding 
how to apply personal stories and how to apply um, beautiful metaphors and anecdotes, which is how the mind remembers best. Um, and then, of course, I'm a fanatic behind understanding science-backed information. So it was beautiful to put all those things together and make sure that there's some really um, tangible, practical advice in there as well. Mm. And so you're talking about reimagine change. So let's start with how do you know, and we've kind of touched on this a little bit already. How do people imagine change? How do we see that first? And then can you share with us how you're reimagining it? Oh, great question. No one's ever asked me in that format before. I think traditionally, because I've come from working in corporate, when I think of change, I think of organisational change management. So right now, um, when you think about change, most people would expect the book, based on my background, to be about organisational change. I believe there is dual responsibility for reimagining change. The first side is the organisation to really understand what's required for cultural change to be sustainable. The other side of the coin is the side that I have written about, which is more about understanding the very personal experience on what it is to experience change and move through it. So I see them as being two completely different things. Um, I'm definitely approaching it more from mental strength, mental wellness, um, and ensuring people are educated on how bad things can get for them and then helping them to come up out of that dip and to be motivated and inspired and to know that they're going on their own hero's journey and that the outcome will be a positive one for them. So when we think about it, you, you talk about, you know, going through kind of the highs and lows there. When we think about change, it should be for the positive, right? But we we have this hesitancy to kind of push off change. Why, why does that happen? Why, why as humans do we try and protect ourselves from changing what we are so comfortable to be in? Well, I think that's because we need to rewire these ancient brains that are in our head. So, you know, this comes back to the original idea that um, the brain is basically um, always trying to keep us safe. It's all about safety and survival. At the same point, it's a pattern recognition machine. So what that means is that um, there's different areas of your brain and they have different responsibilities. So, for example, one part of the brain, uh, like the the brainstem is designed to keep you safe and secure. So it is always looking out for you, keeping you safe and secure. That's why it prefers familiarity. Um, and for a lot of us, we spend most of our lives living in our comfort zone. Uh, so to get out of that comfort zone, we have to get comfortable with discomfort. And sometimes uh, people manage that better than others. And, and a lot of that has to do with the stories we're telling ourselves. You know, we all have these inner critics within us and um, yes, you can be in a happy, healthy relationship at home. Yes, you can be in a positive environment at work. But if your inner critic is saying negative things or if imposter syndrome's there, you're not going to push yourself to get out of the comfort zone and move into that stretch zone, that growth zone that you need to really... Um, try new things, to be curious, to be brave, to make sure you're learning new things and to start fulfilling your potential. A lot of us are just playing it safe 
and so oblivious to how unbelievably capable we are both at changing and at going along with change. I think there's a huge conversation about learning to manage your energy better by going along with things. Conserve your energy for the really deep, creative, judgment-focused work that you need to do and get on board with everything else. A lot of the time I speak to people who are exhausted and it's because they feel that they need to have a point of view on everything to contribute to everything when it's, um, it's a wasted approach. Certainly is. And you're talking about there where to grow and to grow and evolve as people, we need to um, have change and we need to experience it. We need to be uncomfortable to be able to grow. And as we're going through the, the process of, of kind of life, we, we always get to that point where I'm quite happy to watch someone else jump off the bungee jump, but you know, like mm. I could never do it. <laughs> and it's just got such a big fear and it's it's a real shame because I know what it's you know for me I will always be doing something that's uncomfortable every day I always challenge myself I love it I get bored very quickly if I do the same thing I can't handle it (laughs) but this is the interesting thing because um I'm not to say that you're brave in every aspect of your life. So, for example, when you're talking about bungee jumping, I am completely risk averse at certain things like that. Don't get me wrong. I would be able to talk myself into it and do it if I was really motivated and if I really thought the outcome was what I desired. But a lot of the time, these are just very small shifts that we need to make in our lives or in our mindset to have absolutely huge results. And often we're our own worst enemies and we're catastrophizing situations that we don't need to. Mm. And working with, you know, in high performance um, and also with successful leaders, I find what they're really good at doing is reframing things. So when someone feels that a change is too hard, they, they will be reframing it as here's a new opportunity. And is there something you've seen as well about the reframing of how we see things? Absolutely. Um, it's true. There, there are a huge different styles of leadership out there and um, it is a privilege to spend time with people and, and understand that better. But yes, reframing is, of course, a, a different technique that works for people. But, you know, we know from neuroplasticity that what feels hard initially, if you make it part of your DNA or your makeup or, or how you go about leading yourself through change, it will eventually become easier. So if you start to reframe because you've never done it before, you know, within 60, 90 days, that will become ingrained within you and you will much better do it. I mean, I probably don't even think about reframing and how naturally that comes to me because I've been doing it for so long. But when you do meet people and they're having challenges, often it's just that gentle conversation, that coaching Um, which is so important. And that is definitely one thing which I think there is a huge absence in organisations. Right now, the focus uh, of business transformation is largely on building um, digital skills and, and technology skills, and it should be balanced with human skills. And a lot of that comes down to spending time coaching individuals, doing role play, 
um, and then actually making sure that they're doing it. Because often you find that big companies have all of these processes in place and best practices, but a lot of the leadership aren't actually doing it and it falls to the wayside. So um, I'm sure you might have seen this out in the marketplace yourself, but I think coaching is the biggest missed opportunity in organisation. Everyone needs a coach. You have a simple mission to recognize and rehumanize. Yeah, I love that word, rehumanize. Individuals to lead change by design, not by default. Tell us about Reimagine Change, the book, and you know what can we learn from it? What are, what are the things we're going to find when we read it? I think with that mission statement, um, it's all about understanding that, particularly when you work for a large-scale organization, there's at the moment a big push for you to really buy into what their mission is. Um, and I think sometimes it's so heavily conditioned into individuals that they lose a little piece of their soul. They lose a little piece of their independence. And truly um, innovative and creative individuals need to have um, a sense of pride in their authenticity and who they are as an individual human. So for me, a lot of the book talks about um, making sure that, yes, it's great to belong to a big organisation, but we know that because uh, business transformation, there's a lot of changes in um, organisational structures, etc., that you won't be working uh, for the same organisation uh, like what your parents did. You won't be entrenched in those organisations for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So it's more about building your personal brand and trusting that you are capable and have the skill set, the willingness and the curiosity uh, to move through change. Um, and what we know is that people spend a third of their lives at work at the moment. That's a huge period of your life. And if we can turn things around and make it a more positive um, and fulfilling experience, what a fantastic opportunity for the workforce. Okay, so I want to look at this from two approaches here. So if we're looking at change, how do we reimagine change as an employee versus reimagining change as a leader? Well, I think I mentioned this earlier, but we... In the book, we do focus a lot on uh, leaders at all levels because I don't believe that your title determines your leadership. In this day and age, we need to focus on the idea of self-leadership because what we know is that you won't be handcuffed to the one team in that role. You'll be asked to contribute, to uh, co-create, to collaborate and to be working more horizontally across the business. And that's going to involve you really understanding your strengths and weaknesses and being able to articulate those in front of others. And one skill set that we need to start talking about more is not just self-leadership, but change leadership, really understanding what that is, what that journey is for you as the individual. And if you're exposed to a team and they don't have the awareness, being able to have conversations of change around that. So really... The book is a little bit um, of an internal coaching program where it will help you as the individual to understand it so that you can open up lines of communications with others. Um, and one client said to me, uh, their favourite thing about the book is that they are subject matter experts um, in the technical side of the business and that they themselves haven't been trained in um, change or the human side of psychology. 
And so when they get new employees coming in, it's a great book to slide across the table. It's almost the conversation that they're not skilled, that they wish they were skilled in, they can just pass off because um, I, I think that was just a wonderful uh, testimony, testimonial to hear from a client. Yeah, brilliant. And so yeah, as you go through the book, is it is it something that you can can go to different chapters if you need certain areas or is it something where you need to go step by step through and read the whole book? Well, ideally you'd read the whole <laughs> book, but you're, you're right. Uh, these day and age, people are very busy and um, particularly, you know, books are great resources. People like to dip in and out of them. And the way I've approached the book, you know, it's um, packed with stories and science and research um, and simple strategies to take away is that, you um, think of it as the difference between a dinner and a dinner party. I don't know about you, but I just love going to a dinner party or a degustation where you're tasting lots of small dishes. And then off the back of that, you think, oh, I want to go and try that myself. Um, so I've really written the book like that, where there are different chapters. Um, particularly the second half of the book is about understanding how to recode your mind. So um there's that chapter about recoding your mind. There's also the chapter that's all about reimagining your creativity. So at different stages in your career and depending on what's happening at work, you may need to understand how to awaken that creative brilliance within. But in the earlier chapters, it's more about understanding how to regenerate your mind and body from the impacts of change fatigue and burnout so it really depends where you are on that continuum and where you are on that journey and so you're talking about fatigue there so change fatigue and i know you specifically speak around three different types of fatigue do you want to just delve into that a little bit so people understand that fatigue is just not being tired of doing something there are a few different aspects that you need to be aware of yes so the three fatigues that I talk about um, are change fatigue, compassion fatigue, and cumulative fatigue. So change fatigue is understanding the exhaustion that comes both mentally and physically from unlearning, learning, and relearning um, both processes um, and skills and relationships. Um, and that shouldn't be held lightly because Back in the day, people used to only have to transition through one change at a time. What we're finding now, particularly if you're in a large-scale organisation, is multiple change initiatives are coming down the pipeline at once and you are being asked to transition through them at different stages all at the same time. And mostly this is over and above your traditional workload. So it is a lot for you to um, get your head around and most people do suffer um, cognitive overload, which happens when we are trying to retain or learn more than um, five to seven pieces of information at once. So that's change fatigue in a nutshell. Um, compassion fatigue really impacts anyone who leads um, with their heart. So what we've found, particularly um, during the current pandemic, is a lot of leaders have had to have some very challenging conversations with their team. And it might be because they're restructuring, there might be retrenchment, or they might just actually be consoling team members because of um, the emotions that are happening at home excluding the business when you really have team members and you're looking after them and you're treating them like family you do get to understand what's happening behind behind closed doors and often um, that compassion 
can really weigh heavily on your shoulders unless you um, learn about boundaries and how to make sure that you're not taking all of those emotions home with you. So that's a little bit about compassion fatigue, but we do go into it um, in quite a lot of detail in the book because it's just so important to understand how to um, not necessarily give compassion to others, but to apply self-compassion and self-kindness to yourself as the antidote to compassion fatigue for others. Yeah, brilliant. So oh, sorry. That's okay. Yeah. The um, third type of fatigue is cumulative fatigue. So obviously this is more of the physical sense um, where we have gotten into very bad um, sleep hygiene and behaviour. And as a result, um, we're probably focusing our energy um, in places that we shouldn't. So right now people are on Zoom for eight to 10 hours a day. And that is not a positive thing at all for our bodies. We're not used to sitting in front of a screen. We're not used to not moving. Um, and we're not used to, to consuming all of that information all without any form of 3D human connection. So um, cumulative fatigue for me is um, largely formed when people have very bad sleeping hygiene. And again, we talk about some positive practices to lay down because we know that if you want to have um, optimal brain health, that it must start with sleeping as a foundation. Yeah. So, so talking about, you know, we're obviously talking about fatigue here and, and we need to regenerate ourselves back so that we are in a positive state. We have the the positive energy as well. You talk about uh, three, I think is it three different reserves that we need to focus on as well. So we've got energy, resilience, and laughter. Why are those three so important in making sure that we come out of that fatigue, we regenerate and we're ready to go the next day or the next month or the next year? I don't really take fatigue too lightly. You know, I, I have seen, I've researched it, I've experienced it myself. The number one thing we need to keep in mind, fatigue is the precursor to burnout. And what happens when you experience burnout is that your ability to bounce back from burnout to um, going back into the workforce and performing at a level of excellence where you're um, committed to providing best self-work, for um, an individual, that can normally take up to two years. So if you're an organisation, that's two years you might, you might lose your best team member. That's two years where they probably won't come back to your organisation. And as an individual, that's two years where you're not providing a salary um, for your family. That's two years where you are not giving your whole wonderful self to your family. So fatigue should not be taken lightly because it is that precursor um, to burnout. So that is why the book is really structured about ensuring that we aren't just saying, oh, take a mental health day. In the book, we talk about um, how as the litmus test, you need to take at least two weeks away from work um, to really understand and see whether when you return after those two weeks, whether you're still experiencing stress in the mind, whether you're still experiencing emotional trauma in the body and whether you are actually feeling ready to start communicating what is going on um, to your loved one, to a colleague, to a trusted HR manager, et cetera. So um, I'm very cautious about, um, you know, the book goes into great detail about this. And, and right now when I'm writing articles, I'm asked for these quick takeaways. And while I can provide those, 
we do need to understand that it is a much longer journey. Um, I do believe that businesses feel like if we just get a speaker to come in, if we just get someone to write this article and distribute it to the team, everything will be better. But truly, you can't expect individuals to become overnight innovators until you treat them like the fragile, perfectly imperfect human beings they are and make sure that you are respecting the regeneration process. Perfectly imperfect people that we are. Very, very good. We all know that smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. Mm -hmm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Yes. Uh, I will. Hey, going on an author journey and writing a book would be a big one ticking off the bucket list there. Huge. Um, so, yes, there was a lot of newness that came off the back of that. Um, but on a day-to-day -day level, I just think being a parent, you are consistently being challenged by these small beings. And I truly believe that we have um, this wonderful role where we can start teaching them um, resilience at a young age, where we can start teaching them to um, normalise what's going on around them and to have better conversations with themselves and the adults around them. So I feel like I don't always get it right and I'm still learning and I'm still researching and asking questions and, you know, sometimes the parenting one um, is teaching me a lot of lessons along the way, but I'm very thankful for the journey. Yeah, fantastic. What is the one question that you would love to solve? Hmm. Well, the question the book answers is really helping people who spend a third of their lives at work to have a more positive experience, um, a more opportunistic experience of self-leading through change. So that's the question that I've answered with the book. But um, the other one that I think I think about a lot is um, culturally here in Australia, I think we could be doing a lot more about um, respecting our elders in the culture. Um, I'm pretty concerned about our ageing population and the loneliness epidemic and what's that, what that is doing for mental health. So um, that's a topic that I closely follow. Oh, very nice. We need to... I'm seeing here we need to learn from those that are young and we need to learn from those that are more mature. Uh, it's a great perspective on life. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Yes, for me, it would be um, health, happiness and everybody coming home for a Sunday lunch. I have um, young kids and I know they will go off and experience the world themselves and I think there is nothing more special than um, connecting and staying together. So that is my goal as a parent, that um, by the time they're teenagers and then adults, that they still want to bring all their mates back and have Sunday lunch. Um, yes, that would be my answer to that one. Yeah, nice. My mum would have loved that the last uh, 16 years, but I've been overseas. So fortunately, I can't go back every, every weekend for lunch. Kira, you've shared some really great insights and, and have lots to share and for people to learn on and to be more effective in the work that they do and the people that they are. 
How can you, how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? Thanks, Craig. Um, I am most easy to be found on LinkedIn. So please feel free to visit me on LinkedIn and drop me a direct message there. Alternatively, come and see the work that lights me up by visiting the website, reimaginechange.com. And the book is available there and also on Amazon. Fantastic. And we'll put all those uh, links in the, in the show notes as well so people can find them easily. Kira, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. I love your approach on life, the, the way you have experienced it as a youngster, traveling the world into, and living in different countries from Ireland to America and, and obviously Australia as well. And from, from keeping that, the positiveness through that aspect and bringing that through into your world as a parent, as, um, as someone who's worked inside companies and also now from the outside, helping kind of help people and companies externally as well. Your reimagine change is a great approach. And I, I love that aspect because there's a lot of people out there that fear change, that resist change. When everything we do in life is change, everything is evolving all the time, but for whatever reason, they tend to put these barriers up. And I, I love how that you are tackling that and showing people that there is a different way to approach change. And that you know what? It's okay. It's a normal part of our life. And you need to just focus on focus your energy on the things that are really important rather than the small details that you you know may just bother you right now a little bit just because it's different to what you have been doing. Um, so for everyone out there, make sure you check out Reimagine Change. And Kira, thank you so much for your time. It's a real pleasure. I love the way that you speak and communicate and make something which people make very difficult quite simple. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Craig. I've had such a wonderful time talking with you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to an incredible conversation with Kira Lancaster. Reimagine change on the Active CEO podcast. Pressure wins. How do you respond to pressure? Does it consume you? Do you thrive under pressure? Do you have strategies to mitigate pressure? High pressure diminishes performance, whereas gradual increases in pressure can produce diamonds. So why do some people perform better under pressure? High performers absorb and reframe pressure. They see pressure as an opportunity rather than a challenge. Pressure is inevitable, something that we cannot avoid. Preparation will reduce the level of pressure. If you want to learn the skills and techniques to beat pressure through preparation, reframing, and the ability to remain calm under pressure, then please contact me at Craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com, or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can help you utilize pressure to your advantage. Now, coming up next uh, episode in the Active CEO podcast is Nathan Baird, where we talk about the innovator's playbook. So keep an eye out for that one. 
Thank you so much for listening today. I really appreciate it. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.